Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad you're joining us this week. We really are. It's just about Easter and we are getting excited for all the festivities. Easter is about the chocolate and you all know by now how much Melissa and I love our chocolate. So I'm excited to raid my kids Easter baskets. It's parent tax. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the best time of the year. It is. I really do enjoy Easter, actually. I still do baskets for my adult children. It's just so much fun. How do you give up that scavenger hunt? Exactly. But you've got an Easter case for us today, don't you, Christy? I do. We are going to be traveling back to Easter weekend of 1937. Oh, I love the old cases. I really found this case interesting. Instead of bunnies, colored eggs, and chocolate... This particular Easter was filled with the terror of a triple murder. And you said it wasn't a family annihilation, right? It's not. That was definitely the case with our last Easter episode that Melissa brought us on James Rupert. So if you haven't heard that one, you might want to go back and listen to that one as well. She did a really good job. That one was so sad. It really was. That one still disturbs me. Today, our case took place in New York and was so highly publicized at the time that I am surprised it isn't talked about very often anymore. It wasn't a case I knew a lot about before researching. And I'm really curious how many people have actually heard this one. Not me. I'm guessing. (laughs) Before we start, I'm going to ask you, have you ever heard of a mad genius? Like Frankenstein kind of thing? Kind of. Or heard people say that there is a fine line between creativity and insanity? Oh yes, I walk that one very closely sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Not in this way you haven't, but it kind of made me think of, you know, Van Gogh, Munch, or O'Keefe. Our dirtbag was unarguably a talented sculptor, but when you mix in a hypocritical strict religious upbringing, you get a man who seemed to cross the boundary of talent and dove straight into insanity. Coining him the name, The Mad Sculptor. You have me wondering what medium he used to make his sculptures. Nothing gruesome, don't worry. Oh, good. With some of the cases we've covered, you never know. It's true. That's one thing I have learned. We just are never quite sure what dirtbags are actually capable of. And just when you think you've heard it all, it seems to get worse. It's true. That's one thing I have learned since we've been doing our podcast is that anybody can kill you. It's a sad realization, (laughs) but I'm pretty confident that our listeners get us because if they're here listening, they're feeling our vibe. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Or we're just a bunch of weirdos. Oh, man. And the funny thing is we haven't even had any chocolate yet today. (laughs) Sadly, our chocolate stores have been depleted. (laughs) It's true. But with all that being said, let's take a look at the case. We are diving into the world of Robert George Irwin who often went by the name Bob, but I'm sticking with Robert. Robert, however, was not born as Robert. He was born on August 7th, 1907, and was given the name Fenelon Arroyo Seco Irwin. Oh, Robert's so much easier than all that. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty snazzy name, though. 
Originally, it was reported that Robert was born in a tent at an old campground in Portland, Oregon. We have since learned that he was actually born in the Arroyo Seco Park that is near Pasadena, California. His parents gave him this name for two reasons. First, to name him after the river by where he was born, Arroyo Seco. And second, his father admired a theologian named Francois Fenelon. And that is how they came up with the name Fenelon Arroyo Seco. And I'll get into why he changed his name in just a few minutes. Maybe because it was such a mouthful. Robert's father was a man named Benjamin Hardin Irwin. If I did my math correctly, he was 53 when Robert was born. Oh, that is quite old in that time. Well, it was kind of like a second family. While in his 20s, Benjamin was first married to Anna Amelia Stewart, with whom he had a daughter and a son. In 1902, he married a woman named Mary Lee Jordan without divorcing his first wife. He was a polygamist? Technically, he would have been, but he had left his first wife and then got together with Mary Lee Jordan. Who needs to do all that paperwork? Yeah, just a hassle. With her, he had three more sons, which included Robert. And I believe he was the middle child out of those three. An interesting fact, according to death records, only Robert's sister is recorded as having been married, and no children were listed in any of the siblings' records. So if records are correct, Benjamin's family line would have ended when the last son passed away in 1995. And Mary Lee Jordan, Robert's mother, was not listed on their records at all. Oh, that is interesting. Just the original first wife was listed as their mother. So did the first woman take them in and raise them as their children? No, but I don't know if it was because their mother's marriage wasn't legal to their father. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That poor woman doesn't even get claim over her own kids just because she wasn't legally married to him? Yeah. According to findagrave.com. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. And I have to take a minute or two to talk about Robert's dad, Benjamin. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with him, but I think it contributes, at least in part, to why Robert changed his name and ultimately became so morally confused. His father, Benjamin, was a nationally known reverend. There is even a publication about his life and teachings called Fire Baptized, The Many Lives and Works of Benjamin Hardin Irwin, a biography, and a reader. This would have been during the religious revolution, right? It really was. And this is where I kind of went down this rabbit hole. But I'm going to give you a sweet, short, condensed version of what I learned. Benjamin originally was a lawyer, but became converted to and an ordained minister in the Baptist church. Later, as a Methodist, he was known to be involved in the holiness movement. He co-founded the Fire Baptized Holiness Church in 1898. Some of these things are just so crazy to me that somebody can just start a religion. Yeah, it's pretty wild. This, though, was the first documented church to be racially integrated in the United States. Oh, so it was super progressive. Definitely. Thousands of people would attend his sermons. They were described as, quote, highly emotional, with participants often getting the jerks, shouting, speaking in tongues, and holy dancing and laughing. Which seems so odd to us at this time because that's totally out of the norm for us. But during this time period, almost every religious sermon had that kind of thing going on. I would just love to be able to take a little peek in time and watch one of those sermons. I've always wanted to see somebody speak in tongues. Be careful what you ask for. (laughs) You might have a demon following you after you just said that. My grandma has always told me this story about when she was little and she saw somebody speak in tongues. Oh, 
And it just seems so fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things you just wouldn't know how you're going to react until you're right there in that moment. Would you be scared? Would you be fascinated? Oh, I think I'd totally be fascinated. Yeah, it'd be pretty interesting. That's for sure. What is going on in your brain that allows you to do that? Yeah, it's a thing, though. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Benjamin was said to be extreme in the rules that he preached to the church, which included observing strict Jewish dietary laws. He also viewed most things as evil, from wearing neckties and jewelry to drinking Coca-Cola. Which is kind of funny because at the beginning of Coca-Cola, there was actually <laughs> cocaine in yeah. there. I'm like, maybe he was on to something. <laughs> it may not be so great. That's no. what I was thinking in my head. <laughs> Super delicious now, but... <laughs> Back in the day, wasn't it wasn't meant for regular consumption. It really did put pep in your step, that's for sure. <laughs> Benjamin's religious history is extensive, and the church did change throughout the years, which I won't go into a lot more details about. But I just wanted to point out how significant Benjamin was in creating this branch of religion. From what I read, it still functions today, but under a different name. Hmm. And remember when I said that Robert came from a strict hypocritical upbringing? (gasps) Was his dad drinking Coca-Cola on the side? (laughs) No, worse. Oh, no. In 1900, his father Benjamin had to step down as the leader of the church after confessing to, quote, open and gross sin which brought, quote, great reproach to the church. Like marrying a second woman without divorcing the first? No, still worse. Oh. Apparently, he had been engaging in what we might call business transactions with sex workers. Oh. Not the best look for a reverend. Two wives weren't enough. No. To make matters worse, Benjamin left his second wife and children when Robert was just a young boy. He never looked back. This left his mother to raise three small children in poverty all alone. That is super hypocritical. Yeah, definitely. And left Robert probably a little confused. Mm-hmm. Mary was also a devout Christian and was reportedly devastated when her teenage son changed his name to honor his philosophical idol, Robert G. Ingersoll, a man who was nicknamed the Great Agnostic. This idol's philosophies did not mesh with his family's strong religious beliefs. We could see if he had that much contradiction going on in his teachings that he'd be like, oh, just forget it all. I don't want to do any of this. But the interesting thing is that he doesn't just forget it all. And I feel like, as we'll learn throughout this case, he has this inner turmoil or battle between the two. That's not surprising, though, because those teachings that we get when we're small are really strongly ingrained in us. Yeah, they can be cemented in there for sure. So then when we get older and we want to go against them, It's hard to do so. I can see how he would have this inner conflict going on. No, I totally agree. I think that he did. Robert grew up with what is now recognized as some significant mental health illnesses. He was said to be brilliant, erratic, and sometimes violent. He and his brothers had occasional run-ins with the law, and Robert had been fired from various jobs for getting into physical fights with co-workers. The records from this time are not great. But from what I could gather, a family court judge told Robert that he could learn a trade at a state reformatory. Robert took him up on his offer and spent 15 months learning how to sculpt at one of the reformatories. And I'm not sure if he was already there for a crime or being in family court if the judge took pity on him and wanted to give him a free education for some type of skill. I wonder if sculpting was the skill that the judge had in mind when he said you could learn a trade. (laughs) I don't think so, but sculpting is what he chose. 
As with many other young sculptors of the time, Robert began to idolize the leading and widely celebrated American sculptor of the late 19th and 20th centuries, Lorado Taft. Lorado Taft was a big deal. He wrote a book about the history of sculpting and his craft was used as the teaching standard for decades. He also has been credited with helping advance the status of women as sculptors. Hmm. There's a lot of like innovativeness going on in this case. That is often the case you find with artists. Mm-hmm. They're just a little bit more free thinking and progressive, usually. Right. Yeah. But I just really appreciated the interracial congregation and now women being supported as sculptors. And we're not even done with that type of thing. We're going to see more of this. Hmm. What would have been, as I can only imagine as a dream come true for Robert, was that he was at one time able to live with Lorado Taft and his family. So super neat experience to be able to actually live with your idol. I assume he learned so much from his highly revered mentor during this time because Robert himself had become a very talented sculptor. Robert was able to get a job at a waxwork studio in Los Angeles. There, he carved commercial busts of many public and prominent figures, including Franklin D. Roosevelt and Herbert Hoover. Ooh. I was able to find a photo of his Hoover bust, and it is quite remarkable. And I think it was actually displayed inside the White House at one point. That's pretty impressive mm-hmm. from a boy that learned his original art in a reformatory school. Right? But then had this renowned artist as his mentor. Sadly, despite his growing talent, Robert was fighting some seriously dark demons. This was made clear when he attempted to emasculate himself, meaning cut off his genitals with a razor. Well, if your left hand offendeth you, then you cut it off. Exactly. (laughs) Is that what the quote is? I think it's your right hand, but... Something like that. (laughs) There was a Grey's Anatomy episode on that. (laughs) That's what made me think of it. So similar. He didn't actually do the job, but he had... He actually did a pretty good job attempting. And so was that the reason why he tried to emasculate himself? I don't know that he was physically pleasuring himself, but it was causing him temptation. Okay. After this incident, Robert agreed to be committed to a state mental hospital where he stayed for an entire year. And to further answer your question, we really don't know why Robert attempted to sexually mutilate himself. But one of my guesses is that he was possibly confused between what he was taught religiously about sexual urges, not meshing with what he was learning agnostically, and wanting to fight off or rid himself of his carnal urges. Hmm. I'll explain more later why I think this. And it is also believed that he felt his sexual urges were getting in the way of his creative abilities and potential. He was getting distracted by them. Yes. I am envisioning him, though. Sitting in like art class with the naked female form in front of him. And he's Mm. trying to sculpt it all. So he's got a hands-on experience of like a woman's form or a man's, whatever his preferences are. And would that not bring about like feelings and urges? (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. And I have actually seen some of his sculptors of the woman's form. And yeah, he's pretty good at it. Yeah, so I can totally see why he would have these urges or why he felt like if they were intruding on his artistic process while he was doing it, I can see why they would be intruding on it. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. I think you're on to something. Maybe not, though. I mean, as you can tell, we're not artists. (laughs) No. (laughs) He should have just went and crunched on some ice. Don't they say that helps with sexual frustration? I heard that once and I've never forgot it. (sighs) I don't know if it's true, but if you're sexually frustrated, chewing on ice is supposed to help. (laughs) 
<laughs> we are off on tangents today. Um. <laughs> Regardless of how he was being distracted or why. He was being distracted. Yes, it was an issue for him. And so he did seek that help for an entire year. When Robert left the state mental hospital, he decided to move to the Big Apple, New York City. And I wonder how many people move there to start anew. It seems like a great place for a fresh start. Or a place to lose yourself in. Yeah, I'm going to New York, baby. Once in New York, Robert was able to rent a room at a rooming home owned by a woman named Mary Gedeon. The home was a flat inside a larger apartment building. Mary had two daughters, Veronica and Ethel, who also lived in the home. Robert quickly became infatuated with the eldest daughter, Ethel. Ethel clearly did not reciprocate this affection. Still struggling, Robert was hospitalized for a second time. Oh, that's so rough. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's living with these two young girls around his age, and he's infatuated with Ethel. This stay was for two years and was at the Rockland State Hospital in Orangeburg, New York. I wish I could have found his records from either one of those hospitals, but sadly I didn't. From what I could tell, it is not publicly known what his diagnoses were. This was in the late 1930s, so I'm not sure how accurate they would be considered with today's advancements in mental health sciences. Understandably, they might have had a hard time in those facilities during that time figuring out how to best help Robert. And that would have been at a time that there is a lot of different treatment styles going on too. Yeah, ones that are... (laughs) inhumane to practice now. Certainly questionable ones. Mm -hmm. Robert was released from Rockland State Hospital during the summer of 1936. Even after two years, Robert still had strong feelings for Ethel. Robert didn't know it yet, but Ethel had since married a man named Joseph Kudner. Next, Robert began going to the Theological School of St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. On March 18, 1937, at the age of 29, Robert was expelled from this university. It is reported that the reason for him being kicked out was because of his instability. Mm. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but he had earlier been described as erratic and violent. Sounds like he had issues with impulse control. That is for sure. I am assuming he had been living on campus while going to school, because after being expelled, Robert rented a room in a house on 52nd Street that cost $2.50 per week. Today, this is just under 52 US dollars or just over 70 Canadian. This house was only blocks away from where he used to live at Mary Gedeon's house at 316 East 50th Street. It was said that Robert only rented the room for one day because he had plans of ending his own life by drowning himself in the East River. At some point, he changed his mind, and on March 27, 1937, he purposefully walked to Mary Gedeon's house to see Ethel instead, a decision with sinister consequences. But is Ethel even still living at that address if she's already gotten married? No, she's not living there anymore because she is married, but Robert doesn't know that. Hmm. We will go through what happened when Robert arrived at the Gideon rooming house. But first, we're going to fast forward to the next day when three bodies were discovered. The next day was March 28th, Easter Sunday. Mary had invited some family members to have dinner at their home with them to celebrate the holiday. When the family arrived, expecting to walk into the warm aroma of a cooked meal and desserts, they instead made a gruesome discovery. That would be such a shock to the system. Oh, so horrifying. You think you're going for something like fun and celebratory and just walking in on horror? Yeah, I can't even imagine what they went through finding this. The first person to arrive at the residence was Mary's estranged husband, Joseph Gedeon. 
He and Mary had been separated for a few years, but she had invited him to spend dinner with the rest of the family. Oh, so she was kind. She was very kind. He rang the buzzer to their flat, expecting Mary to buzz him in. To his surprise, no one answered. Joseph decided to wait in the apartment entrance for his daughter, Ethel, and her husband to arrive, who was also named Joseph. One report said that there wasn't a buzzer and that he knocked on the door, but either way, if it was a buzzer or a knock, no one answered. He stayed in the lobby. He did. When Ethel and her husband arrived, they tried the buzzer again, but still no answer. Finding this peculiar, they decided to enter the apartment on their own. Because remember, Ethel had actually lived there before. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know how it still feels like your home even after you've moved out. I would never expect my kids to knock. I would expect them to walk back into the house. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Me too. When they got to the right floor, it was like the fourth or fifth floor, and approached the flat, they noticed that the door was left slightly open. Despite that being a little odd, they proceeded to enter the apartment. Upon first walking in, everything seemed normal. The weirdest thing, I'm assuming, would have been that the apartment was empty. No one was cooking in the kitchen, and the bathroom and living spaces were empty. They called out to their family, but no one answered. Which would seem so bizarre. Because that's not the scene you walk into for a holiday meal. Usually there's so much hustle and bustle. There's lots of stuff going on. Yeah, and it would smell so good and everyone's cheerful and excited. Mm -hmm. And it's just cold and empty. Joseph checked Mary's room and no one was there either. There were two other bedrooms in the apartment that Mary rented out, one of which Robert would have previously lived in. At the time, Mary had both rooms rented, one to a 35-year-old man named Frank Burns and the other to a woman named Lucy Blacko. The other bedroom in the apartment, I believe, belonged to Mary's 20-year-old daughter, Veronica, who often went by the nickname Ronnie. And I just love that nickname for Veronica. I don't know why. I think Ronnie's such a cute name. I like it too. And I'm not certain on the total number of rooms in the house. Just that for sure there was these two renters renting out rooms. Joseph decided to check Lucy's room. When he entered, he was faced with a father's worst nightmare. On Lucy's bed laid the face-down, nude body of his youngest daughter, Veronica. And I cannot even fathom this discovery that he made. No, it would be awful finding any dead body, but finding that of your child's, that's just beyond words. Yeah, more than anyone should ever have to experience. When they searched Frank's room, they found him also dead, laying in his bed. 54-year-old Mary seemed to still be missing, until they later noticed that her little Pekingese dog, was whining at the bed where they found Veronica. This was after police were called and had rushed to the apartment. When Joseph knelt to see what the dog was whining about, he made the horrible discovery of his wife's lifeless, half-naked body. She was stuffed underneath the bed where her daughter's body was left. Oh, that would be so creepy. Could you imagine putting your face down underneath the bed and becoming face-to-face with your wife's body? No, I cannot even imagine. And even the worry that they would have had, where's Mary? Because they didn't find her until after the police had gotten there. So there would have been at least a few minutes that had transpired before they discovered her. And the poor little dog knew she was there and was whining. Oh, dogs always know. They do. I will say that police did do a decent job with their investigation especially considering this was 1937 and they didn't have the same technology to help them solve crimes like we thankfully do now. They started with a process of elimination. And I was thinking about this. How did they even solve crimes back then without the technology that we have? It's actually fascinating. It's pretty impressive to me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying they did do a decent job to solve this crime with what they had to work with. 
because he hadn't lived there recently. It was like two years before. Yeah, it's been a long time since he's been gone. And they wouldn't have any connection with him at all. Not right away, they don't. Hmm. Their suspicions first fell onto Lucy, the only tenant of the home who wasn't found dead. Ethel vouched for her, informing police that Lucy had gone home to spend Easter with her family. This checked out and Lucy was cleared. Veronica's driver from the evening was also quickly ruled out. When police questioned the neighbors, they were given helpful information to help them establish a timeline. One neighbor said she heard screams around 1 o'clock a.m. This was assumed to be around when Mary was being killed. And the coroner had given a time frame, I think it was from like 10 o'clock at night to around that time, so it definitely fit with her time of death. Hmm. A different neighbor said that around 2 o'clock in the morning, they came home to see that the Gideon's door was left open. So being a helpful neighbor, he just closed the door and didn't think anything of it. He's like, oh, they just forgot to close their door. Who would do that? Well, if I was walking past my neighbor and their car door was left open, I would close it for them. Right. But I'm thinking, who would leave your front door open by mistake? But I guess some people do. Some people do. It's an apartment building. You could be bringing in groceries and And forget forget to go back and close it. Yeah, I could see that. But it didn't cause suspicion to him. But it gave the police a good timeline. It did. It was also determined that Veronica had come home intoxicated from a date around 3 o'clock in the morning. Police determined that Mary was murdered first. She had been strangled to death. Once dead, she was placed underneath the bed. Next, Frank was stabbed to death in his bed. Frank was partially deaf and wouldn't have heard Mary's screams. He was fast asleep, laying on his functioning ear, and had no idea what was coming. Frank was stabbed 11 times in the head and neck. The life-ending blow went through his ear canal and entered into his brain. Wow, that's a lot of rage Mm -hmm. for somebody that's sleeping and a stranger. Yeah. The murder weapon was never found, but did turn out to be an ice pick. Oh, I know. Next, Veronica came home. Police determined that she had been home for a while before being murdered, as she had half of her hair put up into curlers when she was found. This meant she had some time to undress and begin getting ready for bed. All while her mother is in her room underneath her bed dead. Yes. It also meant that the dirt bag they were looking for was still in the apartment when she got home. Probably watching her. Mm -hmm. Meaning he waited for at least two hours, if not longer, with two dead bodies for her to get home. Just as her mother had been, Veronica was strangled to death. Veronica, however, had more bruising around her neck than her mother did, which we will talk about the reasoning for that in a bit. Well, she probably fought back a lot more. She didn't. Oh. The opposite, actually. But I'll get into the reason of the bruising. Another telling piece of information was that Mary's dog was known to bark incessantly when strangers entered the apartment. No neighbors reported hearing the dog bark. This suggested to police that the dog was familiar with the attacker. It wasn't a stranger. Shocking that the little dog would still be familiar with him after all that time. Mm-hmm. That's impressive and unfortunate. Yeah. Nothing was initially found missing from the apartment, and so police believed that these murders were indeed personal. It was later discovered by Lucy that the only item that was removed from the apartment was her alarm clock. That's very odd. Next, police took into consideration who the victims of this heinous triple homicide were. Frank, as I said, was partially deaf. He had recently been fired from his job as a waiter because his hearing had finally deteriorated enough to make it harder for him to hear. One ear was now completely absent of hearing. He had been renting from Mary for a while and didn't seem to be the main target of the attack. He was considered collateral damage. 
Mary rented rooms from her home, but during the latter part of the Prohibition era, Mary was said to have run several speakeasies. She was born in Hungary and was said to have been a hard worker who lived a modest lifestyle. Mary was separated from her Hungarian husband. They obviously had their differences, but like I mentioned, they were on good enough terms for her to still invite him to family dinners. Mary didn't seem to be the main target of the attack either. That left Veronica. Police had reason to believe that Veronica was the intended target and the reason all three occupants of the house had been murdered. Well, because he had waited around for her to get home. Mm -hmm. Also, Veronica, as it turns out, was a well-known model. And not just any type of model. She was what you could have considered as a pinup. Mm. She was a gorgeous woman who would have had a plethora of admirers. Ironically, Veronica's work included posing for crime magazines such as Inside Detective and Headquarters Detective. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. They have pinups in detective magazines? Oh, absolutely. I was able to see some of the pictures. She would be dressed scantily clad or sometimes nude while posing as a victim, being tied up and tormented. That is very interesting. And very ironic. That she's posed for all these photos, being the victim in these kind of crimes, and then she ends up being murdered. So did Robert have access to these magazines? Oh, they were very popular. Yes. Huh. Two years prior to her murder, Veronica was modeling for an Illustrator Society show that was raided by the New York City Police Department. This was considered scandalous for the time and made for big headlines. The newspaper ate this up. Looking more into Veronica's history, police learned that she had been married and divorced to a man named Robert Flower. Veronica was only 16 at the time of the marriage, and so since she was a minor, the marriage was ultimately annulled. She moved back home, and her wild ways caused problems between herself and her father, as well as between her parents. And this is when it was said that her father moved out. Oh, parenting is not easy. It's not. It's not. Easy on your marriage sometimes either. Nope. At the time of her death, Veronica was engaged to a man named Lincoln Hauser. However, Lincoln was not the man that she was on a date with that night. Oh. She was out with a man named Stephen Butter Jr. She was living it up. She was only 20 and there is no judgment coming from us at all. She was beautiful and having fun. Yep. All this meant was that the police immediately had three more suspects to investigate. The man she was married to, the man she was engaged with, and the man she was on the date with. None of them are the killer, though. No. Police did their due diligence and checked out all three of these men. They all had alibis that the police were able to verify for the night of the murders. Police found Veronica's diary as well as her address book. To sensationalize it, the media called it her little black book. Was it actually black? It probably was. (laughs) And there were more than 125 names in that book, including men and women. So the media made it sound like, oh, she had 125 like little side pieces, right? But that was not the case. It was an address book. Some of the numbers were business related. And the police did take their time and went through most of those numbers and checked them all out. And so is this where they find Robert's name? Robert's name is not in the book. Oh, During their deep dive into Veronica's life, police came to realize just how strained her relationship with her father really was. Joseph later said about his daughter, quote, It's hard to say now, but Ronnie was wild and undisciplined. She simply wouldn't listen to a word that I said. He was also quoted saying, quote, She made fools of men. You can't treat men like that. She was wild. This rotten American system. 
children laugh at their parents and start running wild. Apparently, Joseph was described as being a grumpy type of guy who didn't always have the nicest things to say. He did talk poorly about his wife and daughter. Yeah, it's hard to say because he's from Hungary, right? Yeah. It's a totally different social norm there. And he was, yeah, definitely more of the strict upbringing type of guy. Police decided that they needed to take a closer look at the man who discovered all three of the bodies, Veronica's father and Mary's husband, Joseph Gedeon. Joseph worked at an upholstery shop. When authorities searched it, they discovered that Joseph had nude photographs and an unregistered pistol in his possession. Not to mention that he had access to long, thin upholstery needles that could be used for stabbing and make similar wounds to those that Frank had sustained. Okay. Feeling they had enough motive and evidence, police arrested Joseph for the triple homicide. What? They did. But he seemed to fit the bill. During his 30-hour-long interview, Joseph maintained that he had been out bowling the night of the murders. However, this claim was not able to be substantiated. What? Nobody saw him at the bowling alley? I don't think he was actually at the bowling alley. Oh, he lied about his alibi. Mm-hmm. Why is he lying? We never find out what he was actually doing. <laughs> or at least I couldn't figure it out what he was really doing. But his things are just not looking good for Joseph. He's looking a little suspicious. No, that's why you tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. Even if you were doing something shady, you just tell them. Yeah. Because he had an illegal firearm, Joseph's bond was set at $10,000. Oh, that's pretty steep. Yeah, today, this amounts to close to $208,000 U.S. dollars or around $283,000 Canadian dollars. I don't know about you, but I don't have that just laying around. Nope, I'd be staying in jail. (laughs) Yep. Even in Monopoly, I stay in jail a lot of the time. (laughs) Joseph's defense team argued that this bond was set at an unrealistic amount and were therefore able to get it reduced from the $10,000 to $1,000. Joseph was able to pay this amount and was ultimately released on April 5th. Police decided to take another look at the small amount of evidence that they were able to collect from the crime scene. This decision would be key in helping them solve the case and realize that Joseph wasn't their guy. First, a bloody fingerprint had been collected from the apartment. It did not match Joseph's prints. Second, they found one gray-colored suede glove at the scene. This glove was much larger than Joseph's hand. Third, both Mary and Veronica had bits of skin and stubble underneath their fingernails. Ooh. They had both attempted to fight for their lives by scratching the face of the dirtbag attacker. And enough to even get their facial hair. Yeah. I was like, good for them. Joseph had no scratches or wounds to his face when the police arrived at the discovery of the bodies. Fourth, authorities had found two carvings made from bars of soap at the apartment. That's how he bided his time while he was waiting for Ronnie to get home. Yes. They decided that maybe they should question if this had any significance to the case. I assume they didn't originally put a lot of significance on this finding as it was a common hobby for the time. Every year, the widely known company, Procter & Gamble, held a soap carving contest where people would enter and create the best sculpture out of soap that they could. Police took the bar soap carvings and showed them to the ivory soap carving expert who worked for Procter & Gamble to see if he had any idea who might have created them. They asked if he could recognize the style and talent as being anyone from their contests. Henry Byrne lied and told them he had no idea who carved the soap and told the police that it looked like they had been done by an amateur. Definitely not anyone from their contests. What? I was able to find a photograph of one of the bar carvings, and let me tell you, it definitely was not done by an amateur. It was this amazing sculpture of a snake woman. 
which I assume was made to represent Robert's intended victim, Ethel. Henry Byrne later confessed that he immediately knew exactly who had made the sculptures. The style of carving was most definitely done by their last year's winner, Robert Irwin. And it's so interesting that it was a snake, right? The serpent, the woman, those are all temptations. That's who tempts you as the serpent, and it was the woman that was tempted. Yes. I actually bring that up later in my notes, that correlation between the woman, the serpent, temptation, the devil, all of that stuff. Henry said that he originally lied in fear of the negative publicity that could have been shed on Procter & Gamble and their ivory soap. So that's why he lied. So ivory soap isn't that pure then. (laughs) It was not that night. Once they figured out that Robert was a talented sculptor and had previously lived in the murder house and had been in and out of mental institutions, police figured they now knew for certain who their culprit was. Yeah, they're probably thinking ding, ding, ding. Yeah, jackpot. And like we already kind of talked about, it is believed that Robert carved these bars of soap during the time he waited in between killing Mary and Veronica. And I just can't even imagine being this calm to carve soap after strangling a woman to death who had only shown you kindness. That's a special kind of dirtbag. Or he did it to calm himself. Maybe. Either way, really disturbing. Absolutely. On April 7th, a massive manhunt began for Robert Irwin. Despite their efforts, it would take police almost three months to finally catch their perp. Robert had changed his name to Bob Murray and got a job busting tables and washing dishes at the Statler Hotel Bar in Cleveland. And was he able to hold that job? He was. Oh, that's shocking. And to earn extra cash on the side, he would draw pictures for people. He's still an artist. One night, Robert decided to create a portrait of a 19-year-old woman named Henrietta Kosiansky. She worked at the hotel as a pantry maid. While he sketched her, she was able to get a long, good look at his face. Because what else was she going to do while he was drawing her? Mm -hmm. Ironically, Henrietta must have been a fan of the detective magazines like the ones that Veronica had posed for. Two days after her being sketched by Robert, Henrietta was reading one of the said magazines and stumbled across an article that showed a photo of Robert, which stated he was wanted for a brutal triple murder. Oh, Could you imagine coming to that realization that who you had sat and posed for was a murderer? And it's such a unique situation because she literally stared at his face for a couple of hours while he drew her. It wasn't just, you know, is that him? It could kind of like she really got a good look. Wow. And just the coincidence of her seeing him and then her reading the detective magazine and the specific issue that had the story in it. Exactly. I think the stars aligned for sure. Henrietta couldn't ignore the resemblance. So when she went to work the next day, she asked Robert, or as she knew him as Bob, what his last name was. He replied that it was Murray. She then asked him if he knew who Robert Irwin was, and he denied knowing anything about the guy. Robert must have been shaking in his boots during this entire exchange, because the moment Henrietta left the room, he cleaned out his locker bolted out the back door, and didn't come back. (laughs) Instead, he fled to Chicago. You did say he was smart. Mm -hmm. And Henrietta didn't go to the police right away because she didn't think that her work pal could actually be the killer. She thought that Bob would find it funny that he looked like this wanted criminal who was painted as a crazed killer. She later said, quote, I feel like a nickel now. And I love that phrase. I've never heard that before, but I'm going to use that. Feel like a nickel. Yep. So did she clue in when he took off and didn't come back to work? Well, she also said, quote, 
I didn't call the police because I just thought it was a coincidence. I didn't have the nerve to think of him actually as a killer. So she kind of talked herself out of it. There's Mm -hmm. no way that this Bob, my friend who works here, could be responsible for these three murders. Because I think something like that is so unbelievable. We're never expecting that someone we know is going to turn out to be a killer. Oh, and I think we're always talking ourselves out of things, right? We have impressions and we're like, no, that can't be like that. Yeah, exactly. I must be overthinking it. Yeah, I'm just being paranoid. Mm -hmm. We need to trust our guts. Once in Chicago, after hiding out for a few days at the Morrison Hotel, Robert decided that his days as a free man were numbered and that it would be better if he just turned himself in. Because he's basically like, she saw me, she knows who I am, my goose is cooked. Robert decided to call the Chicago Tribune and give them his confession. The newspaper. Yes. Instead of the police. Yep. That's nice. But shockingly, they thought he was lying and told him to take a hike. Oh, really? Yeah. They're like, yeah, right, buddy. Get lost. Again, it was one of those things that was just done at that time. Yeah. Because Albert Fish sent all of his confessions to the newspaper, too. Right. Well, you couldn't tweet something or post it online at that time. So you posted it in the newspaper. Yep. Robert didn't give up, though, and he tried a different paper. This time, the Herald and Examiner. These guys knew a story when they heard it and agreed to pay him for his story. The paper had struck gold. Robert gave them a detailed full confession. To get more bang for their buck, the paper published the confession in multiple parts. And a little fun fact, you can actually purchase copies of the original paper on eBay. After hiding out for a little while later, and after the world knew what he had done, Robert did turn himself into the Cook County Sheriff's Office and was sent back to New York to be prosecuted. Two detectives escorted him on an American Airlines flight from Chicago to New York. When they arrived, several hundred people had gathered to try and catch a glimpse of the mad sculptor. He was escorted off the plane with one detective on each side of him. They paused for a few brief photographs, and then Robert was whisked away in a squad car. And I wonder if that was that inner conflict, like, oh, I've done something wrong, and so I have to confess. Probably. I'm sure he was having a really hard time concentrating on his work after that. Yeah, if he tried to castrate himself for having what we're assuming were carnal urges, you can only imagine the guilt and the shame that he would be feeling because he murdered people. Yeah, you would think so. Once in New York, Robert was able to fill in a few of the blanks for the NYPD. I will summarize for you a little bit about what he told the press and the police regarding the three murders and his reasons for doing it. Robert admitted that his mental health had progressively declined. He said it was getting worse and worse. No matter what he tried, he could not get Ethel, Mary's oldest daughter, out of his mind. He had become completely obsessed with her, an obsession that started the first day he met her and then just continued to grow, despite Ethel being very clear that his feelings for her were not reciprocated. Robert felt like he needed to get her out of his head to be more spiritually elevated, and when he finally did this, he thought he would feel like he would be able to focus more solely on his art. My assumption that his strict religious upbringing was also playing a factor in the situation. When attempting to cut off his manhood didn't work, and after deciding that he didn't want to go through with ending his own life, the dirtbag Robert came to the conclusion that killing Ethel would be the next best thing, and the logical way to get over his obsession with her. How could she tempt him if she were dead? Unfortunately, he found her mother, her sister, and poor Frank instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Robert had gone over to the Gideon home that night with plans of killing Ethel. He planned to stab her to death with the ice pick that he brought with him to the residence. 
When Robert arrived at the home, he discovered that no one was there. Being focused on his plan, he decided to wait. I assume he was hoping Ethel would be the first person he would see. When Mary arrived home first, she asked Robert if he would take her dog on a walk for her, to which Robert agreed. Maybe he used to walk the dog when he lived there. Either way, this tells me that Mary was comfortable enough with Robert to trust him with her dog. Mm -hmm. When he got back with the dog, they visited for a long while, and Mary introduced Robert to Frank. I assume that none of them at that point knew what was about to happen. Robert's plan wasn't originally to kill everyone in the house. So what went wrong, you might ask? Well, after waiting and waiting, Robert grew impatient. He decided to finally ask Mary when she was expecting Ethel to return home. It was then that Robert learned of Ethel's marriage. Mary said Ethel wasn't coming home because she now lived with her husband. Robert got very upset and said he was staying until Ethel returned home. He thought she was lying to him? No, he just, I think, was in such a different headspace. He's like, well, I'm not going until she comes home, until she gets here. But she's already at home, at her own home. It's true. He's obviously not thinking clearly. And this likely freaked out Mary. She told him she wanted him to leave. He was starting to get so upset. She was probably getting a little frightened, I would assume. You can just envision him escalating and getting agitated. Yeah, because he's just hyper-focused on his plan. A verbal fight ensued until Robert grabbed poor Mary by the throat and strangled her to death. He said she put up one heck of a fight, which was evident by the skin and facial hair underneath her nails. When he realized he had blood on him, he said he smeared it on Mary's face and breast. About this moment, Robert said the room, quote, turned blue with death. An interesting take. I've not heard someone describe it that way before. No. And where's Frank during all this? Had he went to bed earlier? He was already in bed. Okay. When she was dead, he shoved her body underneath the bed. Neither woman was sexually assaulted. So perhaps some of her clothing had been torn off while Mary fought for her life. But it's hard to say if he undressed her afterwards, because one report said that her undergarments were removed. Yeah, that's unusual. So to further answer your question about Frank, he was in his room when all of this horror happened and had no idea that his landlady had been ruthlessly murdered just mere feet away from where he slept. Again, to pass the time while Robert waited for Ethel to appear, he said this is when he carved the two bars of soap. Hours later, Veronica came home from her date. Robert hid in the dark while she got ready for bed. Apparently, he had to wait quite some time while she soaked in the bathtub and did her nighttime routine. While she was in the bathroom, Robert made a makeshift blackjack weapon. A blackjack is a leather pouch that is usually filled with a metal rod or iron. To imitate this weapon, Robert grabbed a towel and tightly wrapped it around a bar of soap. When Veronica came out of the bathroom, Robert hit her on the head with it. The bar of soap splattered, to use Robert's word, on impact. So he must have hit her pretty hard. Evil took over Robert as he grabbed Veronica by the throat and forced her to the bedroom. He tormented her by strangling her for an entire hour. What? I assume he tightened and then released his grip. He said he held his hands around her neck, but tight enough so she could still breathe. And this explains why she had so much bruising around her neck. For an hour. An hour. Oh, that would have been sheer terror. And being inebriated, Veronica was not able to fight in the same capacity as her mother had. I cannot imagine how terrified she must have been during that last hour of her life. And it is so disturbing to me that she had no idea that she was being murdered on the bed above her mother's already deceased body. Yeah, that's awful. About killing Veronica, Robert said, quote, I hate to harm anything beautiful. He also said, 
When Ronnie was dead, I looked at her with a sick feeling all through me. Her beauty was gone. Blue death seemed to issue from her, like a sort of spiritual emanation. My brain was working so fast I could almost hear it. The Englishman, I must kill him too. Ooh, so he got a little bit of a bloodlust after killing Mary? There was just, he said his thoughts were so loud, he could almost hear it talking in his mind that he had to kill the Englishman. And was that to cover up his crime or just that he wanted to kill again? We'll kind of go into that, but he just basically says he had to do it. Hmm. Police had originally thought that Robert murdered Frank after he killed Mary. However, according to Robert's confession, he killed Frank after he had murdered Veronica. My thought is that he could have worked himself up so much about wanting to stab Ethel that he released his frustrations on a defenseless man that he had just met only hours prior. He wanted a bloody death and hadn't gotten that yet with the two women. Robert said that after killing the two women, he had to kill the border too. He said there wasn't anything he could do and questioned why no one could understand the situation. He said he didn't remember stabbing Frank as many times as he did. So he had a little bit of a psychotic break? I think so. When Frank was dead, Robert cleaned himself up and then started to look around the apartment to try and find something that would remind him of Ethel that he could take with him. This is when he settled on taking the alarm clock. And I believe he also was able to find a few photographs to take with him. Why the alarm clock? That seems so random. I don't know. They did have a modest living. So I don't know. He was just looking around. What can I take? What can I take? Oh, I'll grab the alarm clock. Very random. Yeah, that seems so bizarre. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a story behind it or... No, he just wanted a memento. Okay. (laughs) And that was the best thing he could find. About leaving the apartment, Robert said, quote, It was morning when I stepped out and closed the door. See, and he's saying he closed the door, but the report was that it was left open a little bit. There was an overwhelming weariness all through me. I was so sleepy. I could hardly walk the short distance around the corner to my room. I went in and dropped on my bed. It was not until evening that I was awakened by the cries of the newsboys below my window. They were yelling about a triple murder. It did not frighten me. I was as calm as I ever had been. I was sure I would not be suspected. I was so sure of this that I did not even take the trouble to move from the neighborhood, not for a week. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty confident. Mm-hmm. Robert admitted that his original plan was not only to stab Ethel to death, but that he also wanted to decapitate her so he could take her head with him and then make a death mask from her face, meaning like making a cast or impression of her face. That is disturbing. Yes. But he was an artist and that's what he wanted to be able to kind of immortalize her, I guess. Robert obviously didn't make this cast, but he did make a sculpture of her with a cobra wrapped around her neck. Hmm. And as we were talking about, I found this interesting since Robert had been raised so religiously and the devil is referred to in the Bible as a serpent. Mm -hmm. So she was like his little devil. Or she was the thing that the devil was tempting him with. Yeah. Robert proclaimed that the murders of Mary, Frank, and Veronica were accidents and that he only wanted to kill Ethel. He said, quote, I loved her. She was the dearest object in the world to me. And they never said what drove this compulsion, hey? It was from like the first day he met her. He just instantly, I don't want to even say fell in love. Like he's even calling her an object, Mm -hmm. you know, but he just instantly was enamored with her. Obsessed. Yeah. Robert was charged with three counts of first degree murder. Surprisingly, doctors deemed him legally sane during the murders and said he knew exactly what he was doing, despite many doctors who had treated him in the past coming forward to say that Robert was not sane. On one hand, it was said by the warden, quote, 
Irwin certainly isn't crazy now. He's as normal as any man in prison. On the other hand, that statement was rebuked by his defense saying that Robert, quote, was, is, and will be hopelessly insane. He's crazy as a bedbug. Who knew that bedbugs were crazy? Yeah, it's another one of those 1930s odd phrases. I think so. Initially, Robert tried to plea not guilty in the fall of 1938, but eventually took a plea deal and admitted to three counts of second-degree murder to avoid the death penalty. Part of this agreement included a particular pair of pants being returned to Robert that he had left at Grand Central Station in a suitcase in 1937. What? So I'm thinking this just speaks to where his mental state is at. He just got hyper-focused on this pair of pants that he had lost. And he's like, I will give you my full confession to second-degree murder, but I want this pair of pants. And so they went and got him the pair of pants. Yeah, from what I could tell. I didn't find anything saying that they couldn't find him the pants because he does confess. The rock star of a judge who handled this case, Judge James Wallace, sentenced Robert to 139 years in prison with eligibility for parole in 2031. Wow. (laughs) Just a few years from now, Christy. I know. We're not even there yet. And if he did make it to 2031, he would be 124 years old. So a life sentence. Yes. The only thing I found puzzling about his sentencing was the time he got for each victim. Frank's murder cost him 99 years, while each woman only cost him 20 years each. Was this because of the brutality of Frank's murder, or was it seen as more heinous to murder a man in 1937? That is interesting. I'm kind of thinking it's the latter. Yeah. Because he was a man, and the other two women were only worth 20 years each. He had more value. I'm assuming. I don't know. It was just worth noting, I felt like. Robert went to Sing Sing Prison to be psychologically tested. He was ultimately diagnosed with schizophrenia and was said to be, quote, very definitely insane and was then sent to serve the rest of his sentence in state prisons for the criminally insane. He arrived at the Danamora State Hospital on December 10th, 1938. Robert died of cancer at the age of 67 in 1975 and was buried on the grounds of the Medawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Fishkill, New York. Which I always find is so interesting, too, when no one claims the body and they just get buried there. Before I end, I have a few interesting facts and updates regarding this case. First, no one would rent the apartment where all the murders had taken place until a man named Sidney Pilly agreed to rent it. He said he wasn't superstitious and it didn't matter to him what happened within those walls. Oh, he's still getting haunted. Well, on August 1st, 1940, police arrested Sidney on pornography charges. As police were hauling him away, he told them that he forgot to turn off his gas stove. He's like, hang on one sec, I'll be right back. Police allowed him to run back into the apartment to shut off the gas. Once inside, Sidney jumped out of the kitchen window to the ground below, killing himself. What? Yes. He's like, I'm not going to jail for pornography. I'd rather die and jumped out his window. Wow. In 1960, the whole building was torn down and has since been replaced with another building. And that did make me wonder, would you rent an apartment where three people had been viciously murdered or buy a home where a mass murder had taken place? I feel like we've had this conversation before and I think I would. If it was a good enough deal, (laughs) you can clean, you can renovate. It's true. The ghosties aren't going to come get me. I'm not the one that murdered them. (laughs) But then I think of like the conjuring and I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. I go back and forth. Part of me is like, oh, yeah, who cares? It's just a house. 
But then other part of me is like, um. The part that watches all the horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get possessed by a demon yeah. or your husband's going to and murder your whole family. <laughs> I'd be game for it. Okay, I'll find the good deals and pass them your way. <laughs> Second, Robert's case caused legislators to examine how people with mental illnesses were being treated and dealt with. Oh, that's a good thing. Allegedly, many top doctors lost their positions for allowing Robert to leave the mental health facilities that he had been treated at prior to the murders. This case initiated needed changes in New York psychiatric law. I can see that happening because he wasn't out of the psychiatric unit very long when he did murder these people. It's true. And this is another one of those innovative moments in this case where it actually helped to change the law in New York. And it's going to continue to do that. Next, this case promoted discussion on how media portrayed murder victims. It was recognized that Veronica had been villainized in the media because of her racy career and actions and was being victim blamed instead of being treated like the victim that she was. Veronica was kind, intelligent, and a happy person. This was not reported. And Mary and Frank had barely been in any of the headlines at all. Newspapers were using partially nude photographs of Veronica to sell their papers. The editor of Inside Detective tried to fight this by publishing an article about who Veronica really was. And I thought, good for him. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we still see this today. How many times is it asked, well, what was she wearing? Or how much did she have to drink? This case also made officials examine how the sensationalism of this case ultimately resulted in a known murderer being paid by the media to confess. He got paid a hefty amount. Which is like a great big no-no now. Yeah. Lastly, and this is an important one, this case changed how jury members are chosen in the state of New York. The day before Robert's trial was initially supposed to start in September of 1937, there were 841 potential names presented to the court to serve as jurors. Why so many? I don't know if that was standard. I'm assuming. It came to light that out of those 841 names, not one woman was selected to serve on the jury. Because of this, the very next day, the state of New York started putting women on their juries. Wow. So this case did have a lot of repercussions in the future. It really did. Fascinating. Yeah, there was a lot of groundbreaking things that happened because of this case. It's unfortunate that it's because of this case, but it's at least something good that came from it. Mm -hmm. To end, I'll share one last quote from Robert from his confession to the New York detectives. In this quote, he gives more insight into his motive for wanting to kill Ethel. He compared himself to a radio. He said, quote, Bob Irwin is nothing. I am only a receiving set, an extremely imperfect one, which can indistinctly tune in the divine mind. You have heard a radio that isn't working well. You turn the dials and get a squawking. Only once in a while can we get the pure, clear music. My whole idea in life was to perfect myself so the receiving set could always get the divine music at its best. And that is the story of a man so obsessed with his craft and the woman who sexually frustrated him, the mad sculptor dirtbag, Robert George Irwin. What a crazy case. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like an instrumental case for history. Absolutely. I found it really interesting. And like I said, I was surprised that because of the things that this case inspired, that it's not heard about as much. Or at least I hadn't heard about it very much. Yeah, I had never heard it. But that was my Easter case. I hope that all of you will be able to have a wonderful Easter and spend time with your family and loved ones. Absolutely. We hope you enjoy your Easter. And we'll be back next week when Melissa has another case for us. But until then, see ya. Bye. 
hiccup. Go away. <laughs> I, I want to hit the door, but I don't want to move my mic. Here, throw this pen at it. But you need a pen for your. Doodling. I have another one. Okay. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> It's that not wasn't as Christy. Mean. I heard them tormenting a cat. <laughs> it's not as mean as us having to edit the meow, meow. <laughs> I know. Oh. <laughs> Anybody can kill you. <laughs> what a way to celebrate a religious holiday. <laughs> Talking about murder. <laughs> okay, we are wild. We are. <laughs> Is this the guy that had the shoe fetish that led you down that rabbit hole? No. <laughs> No, shh, quit telling my secrets. <laughs> well, at least I could, didn't say the underwear fetish because that one's even weirder. <laughs> Just to be clear, I do not have these fetishes, but was telling Melissa <laughs> how you can earn money from people who have these fetishes. <laughs> apparently, he had been, ex- apparently he, bleh. and so that, so then even when, so even, so. I feel like such a princess. I'm like, sorry, guys, I just have to turn on my heated blanket as I sit on my other blanket. Christy's got one blanket. I have two. I will say police. 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 Dive into Veronica's life. Police. Police. I can't say police today. Just start, start calling them guardy. Yeah, the guardy. The popo. <laughs> the coppers. Which isn't a big surprise, because sorry, because you get distracted by your sexual urges all the time. I no, that's not what I'm talking about, Christy. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.